everyone and welcome to Nerdy Optometrist. I'm really excited to start my new series Public Health Insights. Bill Gates once said, as we look ahead into the next century, leaders will be those who empower others. Our guest for today is one such leader who believes in empowering others. He is a senior vice president of the Social Impact Division for Essilor and also a philanthropist. His achievements speak for himself. I don't think I can justify his introduction, so without further ado, I would like to welcome Dr. Kovan Naidu for this episode of my podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Naidu, you are an inspiration and an idol to many optometrists around the world. It would be really interesting to learn about your optometry journey. So can you please share a brief introduction about your journey so far? Thank you very much. Um... My journey and and I think my trajectory into optometry was really a funny one because uh, I actually wanted to study medicine in in South Africa where where I'm from and where I grew up and um, wanted to leave the university but I was a political activist in the anti-apartheid struggle and the activists decided that I cannot leave during that time so I had to find an alternative to do and optometry was the alternative. But up to today, I say to people, it's the best decision that anybody else has taken for me. Because there was so much when I got into the profession, I realized I could do. And there was so much that was needed to be done. Because in those days, optometry was just focused on individuals' needs in terms of optometrists and private practice alone. And not looking at the broader impact that we're making in society. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate I got a Fulbright scholarship to go to the U.S., studied at Pennsylvania College of Optometry where I did an OD and at Temple University where I did an MPH and I was very grateful that they allowed Mm -hmm. me to do both those degrees. So I managed to get a combination of skills that I needed in terms of where I wanted to take my own role in optometry. Went back home to South Africa, joined the university in 97, went to a conference in Korea and bumped into Professor Holden. Very few people in the room were agreeing with me, but he was one of the few people. He and I had dinner and he asked me what I was going to do. And I said, I'm back home. I want to set up an NGO that drives these public health issues. And he said, don't do that. I'm also thinking the same thing. Why don't we do it together? So he went back to Australia, registered the Brian Alden Vision Institute Foundation. He had already had the contact lens division, research division at that time, registered the foundation, and I registered the Africa Trust of the foundation. So mm-hmm. and it was a phenomenal journey because we built something together. And, you know, it was a privilege for me as a 20-something optometrist to be able to build something with somebody like Brian Alden, who right. was somebody who was not only an amazing intellect and a very compassionate person, but somebody who fully appreciated and understood how you should relate to people from other parts of the world, Yeah, not in a very condescending, I'll help you way, but rather as a partner. So I felt that I'd found a professional life partner in him. <laughs> Wonderful. And which was amazing experience for me. So, and then, you know, when he passed away, unfortunately, I had to take over as CEO of Brian Alden, which I did for a couple of years. And then thereafter, for various reasons, um, you know, it was a changed organization in his absence and decided that I should move on, which I have done. And uh, after I left, I was approached by SLO to join them, which which I'm very grateful for, because at that point, I must make the point that uh, I was approached by a range of people, or organizations, NGOs, and, and even 
people in the WHO, but I know that many people who, mm-hmm. who have worked with me would be wondering, why did I choose ESLO? I'm sure. And I asked a common question to everyone, is tell me how you're going to achieve scale through the role that you're offering me. Yeah. And ESLO was the only one that I felt the kind of trajectory at that point. I'm not saying that others don't now where we could very quickly upscale activities because, you know, you spend your life mm-hmm. creating opportunities, uh, creating programs, etc. And at some point you think, do I want to create just another small project in another small community or do I want to address a whole range of people? Right. Um, and I was pushed in that direction because uh, I had initiated the, our Children's Vision campaign, uh, which up to now has reached almost 40 million children and brought together close to 100 organizations. Wow. And Brian Olden at Vision Institute was able to achieve much more than it could on its own through that coalition. And I really thought that that's the kind of role I want to, you know. Um, so, yeah, I am. Dr. Naidu, I completely agree to your point of a lot of work needs to be done in the field of optometry. Secondly, when you mentioned about Children Vision Campaign and Brian Holden Vision Institute and its success stories, I would like to thank you and Professor Holden for all your work in India for developing India Vision Institute, which has done a lot of work to help the underserved population of the country. Absolutely. So, so I must say that uh, the main driver of that idea was actually Professor Holden. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as an, I was obviously very supportive of. We needed to do more in India, etc. Yeah. And he was like, "Let's throw a hell of a lot into it," and that's how the concept of IVI arose. And um, but also the other main driver of that idea and that vision was Professor Nagrao from uh, LV Prasad yes. Institute. Yes. And uh, you know, who put LV Prasad put a lot of resources towards it. So I think. You know, and it was what was phenomenal about this. You had an ophthalmologist literally throwing resources right. towards the development of optometry, which which I think often has not been credited enough because Professor Olden and I had the profile in optometry. We get most of the credit, but I think that Professor Rao's contribution has to be acknowledged. Absolutely. I think the work done by Professor Rao and his entire team at LVPI is definitely incredible. Now, Dr. Naidu, I would like to ask you, there are many people who want to pursue public health and want to do something in this sector of optometry, but they are hesitant. I would like to know what is your inspiration behind all the work that you have done so far? So I think for me, you know, when I, the year I was in final year optometry, apartheid, which is the racism in South Africa, ended Mm -hmm. uh, when Nelson Mandela was freed. And I knew that I'd, I was, you know, I was very active in the struggle. I spent eight months in solitary confinement and I was banned and I was arrested, etc. So I was very immersed in that struggle. But I knew one thing that I was immersed in it from a moral ethical perspective mm-hmm. and not from a love for the politics of it, right? And and normal politics is about party politics, etc. And I knew I didn't want to be part of that. Right. And the question I asked myself is that now that I'm going to have to work and earn and have a family and do all those things. How can I take that passion into that career? Right. And public health optometry made absolute sense for me to carry forward my commitment to contributing to making this world a better place. So I, I must acknowledge, I don't find myself here from an optometry perspective. For me, the driving force was that I was brought up to 
in a home that where religion meant you do good rather than you spend all your time praying. Got it. Wow. And and so that's where my value system came from, from my mom and dad. And I'm really glad that I made that decision. But what shocked me when I took that decision is that it was almost virgin territory in those days. Right. Um, you know, we weren't talking about access. We were so caught up in fighting ophthalmology. And, and I guess some of us were coming from outside that battle and we're seeing the world differently. And we were the disruptors of that period, as some of you are now the disruptors of this period. Right. And uh, we were saying, you know, don't fight ophthalmology. Prove what we can do for the world, and optometry's role in the world will grow as a consequence of that. And I built friendships with ophthalmologists who were working in Africa, in rural areas, running hospitals, brought up them into the equation, set up schools of optometry where in countries like Malawi and Mozambique where ophthalmologists were the main supporters of that initiative, you know, because when you talk access and doing the right thing, you suddenly realize that these narrow political battles, etc., become insignificant and that people, they are good people can come together and we can collectively make a difference, those of us who care about creating a better world. As you mentioned, you were the disruptor in the field of public health and optometry, and you have usually chosen some unconventional path. Now, I understand what was your inspiration, but my follow-up question would be, how do you inspire others to follow the same passion as you have? So one of the early things that uh, Professor Holden and I did, you know, over dinner, and I remember we were in Sydney, right at the beginning, I had gone to visit him, and we were trying to frame this whole foundation, and I said to him, I come from a background where I'm a fighter, but I fought because I had to. But what I'd like to see is that we be bridge builders in this process because I find that constantly people are trying to say that my approach is better. The public health optometrists say, oh, you know, we can, we make a difference. Those guys are selfish. They're in private practice. Um, NGOs are saying government's not good enough. Government's saying the NGOs are, uh, are using us to make money and survive, etc. Because we had done a scan of the environment and we both agreed that we wanted to be different. Right? right. We didn't want to fall narrowly into camps. We obviously our DNA was optometry, mm-hmm. but we wanted to work with everyone. You know, and at Correct. that point, Professor o, uh, Olden had a good relationship with Prof Rao uh, as friends in the contact lens research space and whatever. So that was a good link with ophthalmology. Mm-hmm. We started engaging with the World Council of Optometry, and I was became an active part of the World Council. So rather than being on the outside, was part of you know, the African Council of Optometry and building the World Council structures as well, serving on the executive now and all of those things. We engaged the NGOs, went and spoke to governments, and then evolved a strategy that said that in order to create access Mm -hmm. through optometric services broadly and through uncorrected refractive error services in particular, Uh you need to have an ecosystem approach. And an ecosystem approach means that you acknowledge that to change something, whether it's IK or anything else, that there are different forces at play and each one makes a relevant contribution. And that we need to now look at how we work with the various people's contribution rather than have an argument about whose contribution is the best contribution. Right. 
And that's the big problem that bedevils the whole world, not just optometry, right? And therefore, you would find we work closely with the optometry associations in India. If we look at it, when IVI was formed, it brought all those people together. Uh, it created a forum, people who were fighting with each other in India and as an Indian optometrist, you know how those fights can be so emotional. Uh, <laughs> and they're very interesting. They're amusing. They, sometimes they're entertaining, but they are very intellectual, which is great, I think, about it. They really help. Those debates and arguments are actually not a problem. They are value of Indian optometry. But we needed to get them together to say, okay, we can debate and argue, but end of the day, when we leave that room, how do we develop common strategies that we adopt? And that was what IVI was able to do, I think, in the initial stages, especially to bring all these factions together. So in all the countries, we spoke to everyone, looked at how we can work with everyone rather than compete with NGOs that are already existing, look at how we can complement, work with them. And I would say that's been the secret of the success of uh, in those days. You know, yeah. rather than seeing yourself as the Messiah, better than everybody, right. we saw ourselves as a facilitator and as a complementer of processes. And without necessarily pushing to then have that leadership that we eventually occupied in the world, that mm -hmm. came as a natural consequence of the work we did rather than a drive to capture leadership. Well, to add up to the information you shared about IVI, I would like to say one thing which I had seen very early on in my career. IVI, though it was a non-profit and it worked in public health, it did have a very positive impact and people or the students wanted to be associated to it to contribute. Reaching out to people who are underprivileged, it did create a kind of inclusiveness where people wanted to be part of the organization. And, and let, me just, let me just intervene there and say that I think also we should not as optometry think that our focus is only about underprivileged people. I think in our daily lives, we make the lives of everybody better, right? Correct. And a good example right now in our world is, is myopia. Right. At the same time, when we talk about the ecosystem, it is about recognizing that we create better vision solutions for everyone mm -hmm. and create access for those who don't have access. Correct, yeah. And, and and when you start thinking in that way, then it doesn't matter where you sit, whether you're sitting in industry, whether you're sitting in NGOs, whether you're sitting in academia. And I've been in all those places except government. And the reality is that then strategies to serve people become what we coagulate around. And I think that's a very, very critical factor in this whole thing. I think what you just said here is fantastic, how the idea is not only to serve the underserved population of the community, but to help everyone who do not have access to the eye care services. It's about inclusion and not about selecting who you want to help. Now, like, like I just want to say, you know, if you look at Professor Holden's legacy, mm -hmm. it started with contact lens, etc. And if you look at the inventions that came out of there, how it made people's lives better. Yes the progressive contact lenses, I mean, the multifocal contact lenses, etc. Right. Um, you know, gave people new options for a generation that was more active, was getting increasingly more active, more conscious about fashion and whatever. It was, they'd grown up and now they were 40 and then they needed the, those interventions. So, you know, it made people's lives better. It also ensured healthier options when the silicone hydrogel contact lenses came up with the collaboration with Siba Vision. Correct. And then if you look at his myopia control initiatives, 
again, change, you know, across the board impacts. And then the public health initiatives for people who don't have access and the optometry education initiatives catered for both. There are countries where in many parts of the world that people don't know that even you had the money, you couldn't get trained as an optometrist. And it still exists. Yes. Because there's no school of optometry. There's not enough facilities, etc. If you look at Professor Holden's legacy, and, and I was privileged to be part of that work, that was about making people's lives better across the board, you know. Totally, yeah. I had a privilege to just have a glimpse of him and just say hi once in my life. So I'm, I'm at least happy about that. And he was a true visionary. Now you have done equal amount of work in the public health sector and, and started this children's vision campaign. How did that happen? Can you give a little more glimpse of that entire idea? So I'd been struggling with the fact that, you know, at that time I was, I think, CEO-elect of uh, Brian Alden. We had had our customary January assessment, strategic planning that year and all that stuff. And, you know, when I was sitting in it, I was just thinking, we're putting so much money into this. But if you look at it, we are doing the same thing over and over in different locations, right? And our resource limitations is preventing us from making those Mm-hmm. campaigns or those programs become country solutions or global solutions, etc. The solutions were good, but you needed to take them to scale. If not, they just remain small projects, right? Correct. And that's how I started mulling this thing around. What do we do? And the whole concept of children's vision emerged on. And I went to Professor Holden and I said, Brian, you know, I'm going to raise something with you. And I want you to remember the day when you and I met. We never said we were going, coming to, we are, we're going to work together to build a brand or an organization. We said on that day, we're going to work together to make, create access for people, mm-hmm. access to eye care for people and better solutions for those who have access. And he said, yes. And I said, well, now I'm going to then make a suggestion to you that we create this campaign called Our Children's Vision. It won't be called the Brian Alden Children's Vision campaign. It'll be called our children's vision campaign. And I want to reach out to industry. I want to reach out to NGOs. I want to reach out to everybody who wants to be part of this thing so that we all drive collectively towards a solution. He looked at me and he said, you know, Brian had this knack of swearing often. He said, no fucking worries. Go and do it, mate. I can't argue against this. (laughs) That was it. It was the shortest proposal I've ever made. It was literally, quote, unquote. That's what he said. He said, we have to do this. This is it. And I was just so thrilled. And I remember he called an urgent meeting, pulled everything. I think it may have even been on a Saturday that he called people in. And he said, Coven's leaving back to South Africa. We need to talk about this thing. And that was the beauty of working with somebody who was so open to new ideas and that could react so quickly to ideas. And the key people in Brian Alden, the staff, they are the ones who really make these things happen. People like myself, we put the ideas in there. A lot of people, even now in Esselo, there's so many people here that work every day so hard to make these things happen. So that campaign ended up reaching out to quite a lot of people. And I think it set the basis for us to talk about different collaborations. And I'm very glad that uh, a couple of weeks ago I was in London. Now that I'm in Isolo, there were discussions here before I got here and even after I got here about uh, what we could do to influence the broader space. Mm -hmm. And um, Jian Bavaragan, who's the chief mission officer for Isolo Luxotica, and why report too. And um, he and I have been very passionate about this fact that we need to work with other people. Fortunately, we found an amazing partner in IAPB 
because the, the new CEO, Peter Holland, shares that vision. And that led to a meeting in London a couple of weeks ago to look at creating a global uncorrected mm-hmm. refractive error coalition or refractive error coalition. You know, a lot of the lessons out of children's vision, etc. And children's vision was a, a limited campaign. It ends in 2020, was going to end in 2020. So now there's an opportunity for us to look at how we can work more closely and take this forward and place the issues at the center rather than the organization or the company or the university, et cetera, and uh, leave some of the narrow politics at the door. That is so true. I agree how you simplify and help us look beyond a project to look at scalability and look at things in a more broader aspect. Now, we all want to give back, but when it comes to monetary returns, they do hesitate. That could be one of the reasons why people do not get too involved in this sector. Can you share your thoughts and your perspective on that? So I do think that that is a real issue. And Mm -hmm. therefore, I think we need more ordinary people doing extraordinary things than always looking for extraordinary people to do things, right? Right. Uh, so, So by that, I mean is that you and I in our daily lives need to look at how we make a contribution so people mm-hmm. don't have to give up their earning, don't have to give up their lives, don't have to do all of those things in order to contribute. So so I think as an overall situation, that's what we need to strive for and don't make this the role of a few people. Right. You know, when I was at university, um, I coined this phrase that the liberation of our people will not be attained by the immense sacrifices of a few, but by the humble sacrifices of the majority. Because I felt that you mobilize everyone towards a cause is more powerful than having few great leaders, right? Right. And so I I think that when we approach it, we shouldn't be about career switch only. Mm-hmm. Because then, yes, the opportunities are limited. And it's easy for people like myself who have the profile that I say to say, oh, yeah, you know, it's great. Do this thing, etc. But we, we have good jobs in these things because, of course, in the beginning, I worked for nine years with Brian Alden and never took a cent because we had no money, right? Mm-hmm. So, but eventually, I have a good job, I, you know, all of that because of the profile we have. So we can't impose that reality on everyone. And I think, so that should be the first thing. It's not about necessarily a career switch. We need to look at how do we, within our current confines, make Mm -hmm. a contribution. And that could be an optometrist adopting an underprivileged school and providing eye care services in that community, engaging, you know, while you're making money out of the people that have money, you work with those who don't. That's one level. The second level is that, Obviously, there are careers with NGOs, etc. And to be quite frank, it's a misnomer that these careers are not good careers. I know that increasingly I get inundated by private sector optometrists who are looking for those jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not enough of them, etc. So there are opportunities, especially in the developing world, where people mm-hmm. can do that. But increasingly, also, as we our advocacy efforts are growing, governments are starting to create posts and I encouraged optometrists, like in South Africa, we got a grant for a million dollars from Standard Chartered Bank and created the model for optometry to slot into the district health system for the province. And after three years, government took over. But I encouraged the optoms, while you are here, get postgraduate management qualifications. Why do you want to do a degree that's linked to research if you, you know, you're not going to go into academia or whatever? But if you're in this, get a public health master's, get an MBA 
And now lots of those guys are moved into management roles within government mm-hmm. in the health system, the provincial coordinator of IK. So they've got good careers that develop. So that's starting to grow in the world, but it'll be dishonest for me to say, oh, guys, rush towards it. This is happening. Yes, there are a limited amount, but we're building a movement here and this movement has been growing. And it's frustrating for people like myself who've been around a long time, but fortunately, it's gaining more and more traction now. But the last option, it's the reason I joined Isolo, because Isolo said, how can we use entrepreneurship? Because people are doing all these other things. And in fact, they were collaborating with us when I was in Brian Alden. They were a founding partner with us in our children's vision. We were working closely. We're sharing ideas. And they took entrepreneurship and said, can we bring entrepreneurship into the space and look at how we can empower people mm-hmm. to own their own optical shops in rural areas so that that drives access? Because right. we recognize there's only so much governments do. Right. And the truth is that if government only focuses on the poorest of the poor and you have entrepreneurship, you have NGOs, you have private sector, etc., catering for the next, that whole ecosystem gets catered for in a more viable way. So that aspect is something that creates opportunities. Now, nothing stops young optometrists from starting to look at that. In countries where the rural ladies don't have access, is there an opportunity for you to create a business where you bring in other people, other young optometrists, etc., at the bottom of the pyramid and look at a different business model? Because what SLO is showing now is that 7,000 people in India alone have Mm -hmm. viable income out of providing refraction at the bottom of the pyramid. Oh, wow. And there's thousands in Indonesia, Bangladesh started, etc. It is a very powerful tool to give people a viable income as well as make a contribution. This whole inclusive business terminology that a lot of people relate to it from the perspective of social entrepreneurship. The World Economic Forum talks about it now. It's a big catchphrase as well. So these things are catching on across professions, across sectors now. And optometry needs to look at that and get with it. We can't say that we won't go to the rural areas, but nobody else should go there. Right, right. Right? No government is prepared to accept that argument. No one is accepted. Now, I do agree. And it's hard for many optometrists because... They think, okay, but now we have to bring in other people into the equation and they may take off our role. But, you know, the more recent strategy that we're using in India with these IMATRAs, for example, where we brought in tele-refraction, mm-hmm. IMATRAs are doing the exam, being observed by an optometrist remotely, being signed off by an optometrist, ensures that the system of developing professionals does not collapse. Right. Firstly. Right. Secondly, it also creates an aspirational system. And the aspirational system is the fact that an IMATRA, for example, basically is like a refractionist. We're now engaging educational institutions to give them mobility to become optometrists. Right. Okay. And that could help us solve a huge crisis that we have. We know that optometry cannot eliminate vision impairment due to uncorrected refractive error for the simple reason that we cannot produce optometrists fast enough in the developing world. True. Right? But we got to start thinking innovatively. The whole world is doing that. The, around us, people are using apps. You know, you have the other extreme where people come and say, I got this app, it'll solve the problem overnight. But we know right. healthcare is very different. It's not like selling a commodity. But if we don't then come up with solutions to show how technology can be integrated in the right way, sooner or later, there are going to be governments, there are going to be 
communities are going to say, I'd rather take something that just does a, a slapdash thing than wait for the ideal solution because I need to see today. I need to see so I can earn. I need to see so I can learn. Right. I need to see so I can enjoy my life, right? You know, I think we are in very challenging times as well as optometrists because we've never been challenged with the disruptions that are happening in society around technology, artificial intelligence emerging, etc. It's a different world we're in. And we can't close our eyes and hope that the world will go away. It's not going to go away. Well, I cannot agree more about the whole change and the disruption happening in the optometry or the healthcare industry due to technology. I myself am involved in telehealth and ocular telemedicine. I do know the change is not coming. It is right here. And there might be people who would want to take over and come up with new ideas who might not have that much of knowledge and experience. I think that's where an optometrist should take the lead instead of resisting it. Society only owes you dominance of a sector if you're a thought leader and an access leader. Other than that, society doesn't owe us anything just because we got a degree that says we are optometrists. Right. We've got to earn our keep in this world, right? Like everybody else. Graduation is just the first phase. That certificate True. is just the first phase. When I was in practice, when my patients came, I put a lot of effort into it. And and 95% of my patients were very well-off patients. You know, they had medical insurance. And I put a lot into it because in order to get that kind of critical mass that I had at that point, I had to... Give them a service that makes sense. You earn your keep, Correct. you know, dominance or, or influence. All of that comes with you doing the right thing for people, rich or poor. I think this personally has been one of the most inspiring episodes for me, where I constantly was forced to look into this whole sector in a completely different manner. Thank you so much for sharing all those insights, Dr. Naidu. Now, one last question before we end this episode. What is your one takeaway message for anyone inspiring to be contributing to the community or wants to bring the change? Some idea that has stuck with you forever, which you would like to share with all my listeners. To see change as an opportunity and not a problem. And with due respect, I have to say that I work across sectors. We are definitely in a lot of instances, we are a profession that finds change very difficult to deal with. Right. That's the defining issue for us, or the world's going to leave us behind. I was in Mexico and I watched neurologists sit in a room and diagnose people who are in rural communities through wow. telemedicine. And I had an optometrist say to me, telemedicine's bad. Yes. I said, because it's putting the lives of the patient at danger. And I said, are you really being honest? I just saw a neurosurgeon deal with a patient with a tumor who's going to possibly die. And you think that optometry is so unique that we can't think outside the current model that we have? <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying that I have the solution. I don't know what the exact answers are. But definitely in SLO right now, we, we're working with all these solutions, bringing optometrists on board, working with them and looking at how we can find solutions that create greater access. But we have to be open to investigating these things as a starting point. Right. But... I find generally we are very difficult to change as a profession. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying everybody else, myself included, because we, we're a very structured profession. But if we embrace this change, lead that change, I can't see how any country in the world cannot one day depend for most of its eye care on optometrists. Wow. 
which is not the case right now. And let me leave you with this, you know, mm-hmm. you create the right thing, show your value in the system. I was involved in initiated the setting up a school of optometry in Malawi. The optometrists graduated, they're now in rural hospitals. And one of the optometrists contacted us to complain that the ophthalmologist was giving him a hard time. And I investigated and said, why, why is this happening? And he said, the ophthalmologist said, he's fed up with me referring patients for glaucoma when he's got so much patients to see in his hospital. He said, it's about time I do more. Wow. So it was totally opposite yes. to what happens in the US oh, and other yes, places. Oh, yes, totally, right? 100%. But again, you show your value to the chain because that ophthalmologist then said, guys, why don't you let me train you and support you to treat the glaucoma rather than sending them 100 kilometers to me to get the glaucoma treated? And that's really what I'm, I'm trying to raise in, in a more conceptual, and this is a practical example about embrace the change, get in there, show the leadership, this profession as a natural leadership role because of the scope of services we can provide in eye care. You know, I remember when I first got involved, there were NGOs sending people to pension pay points, et cetera, looking for cataracts in South Africa. And I said to them, just develop refractive services. They'll come for glasses. You'll find more cataracts than you can deal with. Today, most NGOs are using refractive services as their catch for cataracts. I think that's a wonderful takeaway message, Dr. Naidu. I really like the whole idea of be the change you want to see and do not resist the change, but accept it and try to implement it in your daily life. I have mentioned multiple times that your entire conversation in this episode has been truly inspiration. I would like to tell all my listeners, we are going to come back with the second part of the episode very soon. Till then, thank you, Dr. Naidu, for all the insights. Thank you for sharing all your real-life experiences, which are a true inspiration for everyone. No, thank you for having me and thank you for what you're doing because I think these are the kind of things that influence and push people and I, and I know it takes a lot of your time and uh, effort. And I think, I know I would speak for many optometrists. We are grateful for what you are doing. Thank you so much. It's, It's a great pleasure and it means a lot when it comes from you. Thank you once again for all your time and inputs. Thank you. Take care. Bye.